Go on, do whatever little shit you want to stir up. Go on, get it done. Uh, okay, any more? Any more? Uh, okay, sounds like any more. What do I know? last week. Shut up! Alright, here we go. Where's that? Where's that? Jeez, there's so much, so many notes. I need to go back to school for all these notes. Yo, can y'all hear me? I say, can you hear me? Great. Please and thank you. Uh, Sakiba handling trade five. What's happening? Uh, Brian, I see I was talking eight oh five. Hey, I'm here now, so that's that's all that matters. Uh, Bizlet, uh, Bizalism. Hey. Alhamdulillah to everybody. Huggy Pacino, what's happening? Yo, so let me read this disclaimer real quick. I gotta I gotta read this this script. <coughs> Yo, you are now tuned into uh the Morning Star show featuring me, the bad guy. The, the little bad guy. Don't look at me, woman. I'm doing my intros right now, okay? <laughs> Uh, shout out to our producer uh, extraordinaire Cindy Ashby. Um, visit us on www.onthewakeofradio.com. Uh, all shows are live 24/7, 365, continuous. You can catch the replays on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google, and Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Google Play for replays. Uh, call-in number. I'm not doing a call-in tonight. And you can always find me on YouTube under SuperSlot75 for a heavily flawed individual. All right, so let's get into it tonight. Wait a minute. Sly said, he said, I built like Tupac Shakur. I don't know if that's a... Is that a compliment? Should I think that's a compliment? Pac was like, what, 5'7", five, five, 160? Yeah, okay, okay. I, I'll take that. I'll take that. I ain't tripping. Curly, what's happening? The one, what's happening? Uh, okay, let's get into it. David Mitchell, am I later? Just started. We just started. Just started. All right. I have five. Count them five movie breakdowns. That all uh, are in that matter today. They all have themes current with today. Okay? So, let's get into the first one. No, Uncon Jibs is the first one. Hey, you just do what you do. You finish cooking. Okay, you do that, and I'll do this, okay? Right? Okay, now if you want to do a cooking channel, you let me know. Oh, I can do me now? Yeah? Don't get married. Don't get married. Uh, Okay, first one up is Uncut Gems. 
This is by far Adam Sandler's best role ever, 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 ever. I felt bad for this character. I wanted this character to win. He's a tragic figure. He's a screw-up. He's a schmuck. But I was still rooting for him throughout this movie. And I will, I will lay out why it applies today, to, to uh, today's time. So wait, 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 wait. There we go. All right. So now, opening scene is 2010. They are at the Waylo Mine in Ethiopia. So you keep hearing about Ethiopia the last couple of weeks because uh, last time I checked, Israel took in some Ethiopian Jews. Now, regardless of how you feel, this is not a Bible lecture or you feel who the real Israelites. I'm just saying Ethiopia is kind of, it's kind of funny that Ethiopia is being talked about. All right. So there's a mine worker who has a compound fracture. All right. Two workers find a raw opal stone in the mines. The scene then transitions from inside the opal, because as you watch the movie, it, tra- it goes into the inside of the opal. You see the molecules, it, its structure. And then it goes into, transitions into a shot of a colon. So as it transitions, you see it's 2012. Howard Ratner, played by Adam Sandler, is having a colonoscopy. Howard is a jewel dealer. Okay? And then as he returns from his colonoscopy, he goes to his office, a leg breaker. Works for a heavy. A leg breaker named Phil slaps Howard in the face at the store in front of his clients. Howard owes money to Arno. So Phil is the leg breaker for Arno. They take four grand and they take a they take an Audemars PJ watch off his off his wrist as partial payment. Howard then visits his assistant mistress. So he has the mistress in her own apartment on the upside. Okay, up up north. Right? She's a party girl and hangs out with celebs. She gets celebs clients for Howard's jewelry business. Howard then sells a, a Michael Jackson crucifix to the weekend. Okay? Howard then meets uh, his bookie. Goes to see his bookie. And then two of Kevin Garnett's bodyguards beat up the leg breakers at Howard's store. Because they're coming. They're coming as the leg breakers are leaving. The the, the brothers are going. So an hour comes in and sees the, the Italians getting beat up by a bunch of brothers. All right. And then as they're looking at jewelry, Damani, played by Lakeith Stanfield. Lakeith is like Damani is. Uh, he would be KG's personal assistant. So they're looking at jewelry. Um, Howard gets a package. It's the opal that was found from 2010. Okay. So then Damani and Howard get into an argument because Damani's like, yo, where's the good stuff at? You're showing us, you know, the diamond Furbies. We want to see the good stuff. Okay. Howard is in it as a, he unpacks the, uh, the, the opal from the fish. He instantly becomes mesmerized by the stone. So it's like anyone who holds this opal and looks into it. Now, mind you, it's uncut. It's, it's a raw stone. It's still got the dirt around it. it. It's totally uncut. So anybody that looks into this thing kind of become it's kind of mesmerized by its its chemical pro- its physical properties all right so then howard mentions african jews in ethiopia they have access to precious black opals he then shows kg the opal and said that opals hold uh, the universe inside of them okay kg then looks in, in, at the opal 
and then he he gets transported instantly. There's flashbacks up to him as a kid, flashbacks to him playing in Minnesota. There's flashbacks to him um, in the NBA, and then he sees images of the mine workers. So it's all these cut flashback scenes that he's seen as he's looking into this opal. So he's drawn into this opal. He has an actual connection to this opal, okay? And then KG accidentally breaks the glass that he's, he's leaning on top of it. So then KG takes it as a sign. He says, he needs this. KG wants to buy it. It's not for sale. Howard wants to sell it at an auction. KG says, well, let him hold it for, for a game. This is the playoff season. They're playing against Philly. They're in a seven-game series against Philly. Okay? KG feels, feels connected to the stone. He, he said he feels like a 40 or 50-point night. KG says he feels like he can fly with this stone. To swap it out, KG gives him his Boston ring, his uh, Boston championship ring to hold his collateral for him to hold the stone uh, for, for tonight's game. Howard, being the, the, the goofball that he is, he goes to pawn KG's ring for 21 grand with a 7% VIG. And he has it paid off by Friday. Uh, then they say, uh, they say Mazo before party. So they're all Jews, okay? This movie, I'm gonna get to the point where it's gonna remind you, and shout out to Time Lord. Time Lord is, is the father to, to, to this part. The whole sports is rigged. There's a part in this movie where I'm gonna to explain to you how they how they uh, how they rigged the games we have to do. Okay, so then they say Mazo before for, before parting. The leg breakers are, are following Howard. Howard changes his bet to forty grand with plus one with lightning bets six way parlay. KG with points and rebounds. Okay. So then Howard's wife is nagging him about watching the game. Howard watches the game in uh, in his son's room. Howard makes the line bets. So he wins, all right? He goes to see his mistress, but hides in the closet. Before she gets home, he jumps out and surprises her. The next day, Howard is waiting for Damani to return the stone. That was the agreement. Howard owes 32 grand to a bunch, to, to, to two little Jews. Two little Jews come up, they got wavy hair and they're balding. He's like, hey, Howard, you owe us, you owe us. And he's like, ah, playing them off, playing them off. Because they're like, they're little. They're little guys, but they, he still owes them money, so he kind of plays them off in front of Damani, like, get out of here, I don't, want to no, I don't want to buy your watches, blah, 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 all right? So then Damani pulls up, with, doesn't have the opal, he takes Howard to the Boston practice facility where KG is at. Howard tells Damani, the first, right, here, here we go, Here's how to, this is how you know the sports is rigged. So Damani and Howard have a conversation about basketball. So then Damani's like, oh, the first two points was probably scored by a white boy in the NBA. No. The first two points ever scored in the NBA was by a Jew named Ossie Schechtman. 1946 for the New York Knicks. Okay? He died at the age of 94 in 2013. Otto Schechter, the first person to ever score in the NBA was a Jew. This entire movie basically tells you who runs what. Period. Um, later that night, while at his daughter's play, the two leg breakers are in attendance. Howard speaks to them outside. He bites one of them. They give him a foot chase. They kidnap him, bring him in front of Arno. Alright? And then they, they had stopped his bet. 
So that bet for 40 grand uh, that, that you mentioned earlier, they stopped his bet. He, he won the bet. KG, pulled, he, 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 hit, he hit all his numbers, but they stopped the bet. So then they strip him naked and lock him in the trunk of his own car. His wife, he has to call his wife, uh, Dina, to free him. And that night, Howard calls Damani to arrange to get the stone. So Dina and his daughter do not respect, um, they don't respect Howard at all. Now, mind you, whole Jewish family, wife, kids, you know what I'm saying? So then Howard attends an event looking for Damani, but he sees his mistress with the weekend. Because she's a party girl, this is what she does. Damani says he doesn't have the opal. Howard has to re-enter the, the event because he left and came back. So this is where you see uh, Mr. Flawless, um, Greg Yuna, big-time jeweler out of New York. But if I remember correctly, he no longer associates with Flawless. He, he's his own jeweler brand now. So he's strictly Greg Yuna. He used to be Mr. Flawless. He does no, no longer works with the Flawless jeweler. He's, he's his own now, okay? So then Flawless uh, tells Howard he needs that Michael Jackson crucifix back. Howard finds his mistress in the bathroom with the weekend. He attacks the weekend and gets thrown out. The next day, Alice, with the selling house for the stone, is demanding the opal. KG and Damani show up to, the, uh, to give Howard the opal back. KG then offers 250 grand for the opal. KG wants his ring back. Damani wants his watches back. Damani and Howard had a side deal going. Okay? Damani then pours triple X uh, vitamin water into Howard's fish tank, killing his fish. Howard's doctor says his colonoscopy was clean. There's a joke about Jews and colon cancer. He says, well, you know, the, the thing with Jews and colon cancers, hell, I thought Jews were, their own, were the chosen people. So they make this joke between him and his doctor about Jews and colon cancer and them being the chosen people. All right? During the Passover dinner, Howard reads the plates. Uh, Arnold also shows up to Passover because, like I said, they're all Jews. And his, while his mom uh, reads in Hebrew, he does the thing with the plates. And the one thing I caught during the reading was death of the firstborn. And he looked at his son. He said it could still happen. So I thought that was pretty interesting when they were reading the, uh, the plates. And he takes the, the liquid and throws it on the plates. Every time she says something, he repeats it. She said it in, she'll say it in Hebrew. He'll repeat it in English. And he'll throw like liquid, liquid on the plates. All right? So then Howard implies to his wife that uh, he wants to, he, that it's not working, that he wants to, to, to fix it. She laughs in his face. Uh, she says she despises him and wishes she'd never met him. Howard then walks away. Now, mind you, this is his wife of however many years. So this is, once again, Howard gets no respect from his wife. Howard then goes to make sure Julia left the apartment, his penthouse. Uh, he checks his son for asking who's the hot chick living in his apartment because his neighbor, his neighbor spilled the beans. All right. The next day, Howard goes to the auction and sees the opal has been uh, devalued for $150,000. The original agreement was for them to appraise the opal for $750,000. So Howard flips out. He calls his, his father-in-law, Louie. All right, he asks Louis to jack the bid up to 250 because Kevin Garnett's at the, at the auction as well, too. So he's asking his father-in-law to raise the bid up to get Kevin Garnett to pay more for the, for the Opal. All right, so then KG, KG shows up. He bids 100 grand. Louis then bids 110. Then it goes back to KG. It goes up to 190. KG has a female Jewish 
advisor telling him no. Louis gets the, the opal, it backfires. So Louis end up getting the opal for 190. Howard will, uh, Howard explains to Louis he's gonna wire him back to 190 plus 20%. Howard goes to sell the opal back to KG for the 175, okay? So then Howard returns back to the store. There is a Hamsa pendant on the outside of his door. If you know what a Hamsa pendant is, it's like a hand upside down with the eye in the middle. It means a whole bunch of different things to a bunch of different people. I'm not going to get into the breakdown for that. All right. So then Julia professes her her love for Howie because she's she works at his store. She got his name tattooed on her on her right ass cheek. He and then Louis has and then Howard has a breakdown. So Howard realizing his shortcomings in life and he starts crying because all of his plans have all fall to the, fell to the wayside and he says he's nothing he's not worth it she's like no you're worth it you're a good man I love you we can we, you can come with me okay so <laughs> then Howard gets a call from KG's agent to buy the to buy the opal for 175 grand so then now Howard's plans are starting to come back to life again Howard tells Ar- Arlo that hey he sold the opal Howard then swaps his next ring for KG's ring KG gets his ring back, and um, Howard gets the opal. Howard gets 165 grand, less 6% for the money. Okay? <laughs> then, Howard shows KG the line in Vegas because they're having a conversation. Because KG wants to know, well, how much do you really pay for it? And he's like, ah, you know, come on, it's a thing, it's a thing, it's my thing. You know, it's not about what I pay for. So he says, I paid 100 grand for it. So KG's like, oh, you just doubled your money. He said, hey, man, it's just like sports. It's like the sports thing, sports thing. So then he, t- he plays KG's mind. He says, you know, they didn't got you picked to win tonight. He shows KG the line in Vegas. Philly's supposed to win game seven. So then b- based off KG having the, the diamond or the opal and him being so upset at the line in Vegas, Howard bets the 165 grand he got from KG on the Celtic game. Arlo shows up to his store to collect the money, the one, the 165. Howard puts the money in the bag, gives it, gives it to his assistant out the window. He gives her, makes her, books her a flight to the Mohegan Sun to place the whole 165 on Boston to win game seven. Okay? Howard tells Arlo he's going to mess up the line for the game. The goons hang Howard outside the window and want him to call Julia to come back to bring the money back. Howard refuses. On the way out, he locks him in a security door. So you know when, when you go to most jewelry stores, uh, when you go to the back, there's the invisible enclosure. Then you go into the office. So he's locked them in the enclosure. They can't get out. All right? So then he explains to them the NBA doesn't want Philly to win. They have no stars. The refs know it. So he's breaking it down to Arlo. Like, they're going to make they're gonna make Boston win, and here's why. So then Julia places the wager. She places a three-parlay wager on Boston. Howard watches the game uh, with Arlo locked in the security door. He actually plays the phone call from Julia to Howard. He says, this is the bet I placed. This is what, this, this, these are the lines. All right, so Arlo knows the bet's been placed and what, what the wager is, okay? He bet on the tip, the opening tip. He bet on Boston getting the opening tip. He bet on KG making his first shot. Uh, KG makes his first shot. Uh, one of Arlo's men is in the Mohegan Sun looking for Julia. So off the rip, KG's hitting his shots and he win the opening tip. 
The Celtics end up winning game seven. They won. So Howard basically tripled his money. Okay? He buzzes Arlo back in and his goons. Phil, the, the, the blonde goon, then shoots Howard in the face. Kills him. So then his boss, Arlo's like, what did you just do? Phil, being the live wire, he puts the gun in Arlo's face. He says, you want me to shoot you too? So him and the other goon start breaking the glass to make it look like a robbery. Now, mind you, they're on camera. Arlo tries to escape. This is the boss. Phil shoots Arlo in the face, killing him. So after the game, they're interviewing KG. KG's feeling good. He feels vindicated. He says, yo, I give credit to The Rock for inspiration for his performance tonight. He said, The Rock showed up. The Rock was here, meaning the, the black opal. Okay? Julia cashes out. So she walks out of the Mohegan Sun. Well, actually, she had a, someone else get the money for her because she knew she was being followed. So she gets the money. She's in the limo. She's on her way back from the Mohegan Sun. So as Arlo and Howard, both with bullet holes in their faces, bleed out, there's a there's a descending shot into into Howard's bullet hole into his into the side of his face. Then it transitions back into the black opal. You see the insides of the opal, and then you see a night shot of the universe. End scene. Yeah, this was a, a very slept on movie. I know they. They wanted an Oscar nom for, for this, for Adam's role. He played this role flawlessly. Like, if you ever had an idea of how a jeweler is, this would, this is the way I, I, I view jewelers because of Adam Sandler's uh, performance. So that was Uncut Gems. Eee. Sad, tragic, man. Tragic, tragic. All right, so what am I going to do next? What am I going to do next? Okay. Let us do... Next breakdown <clears throat> is One Dark Night. This is a sleeper. I don't know too many old heads know about this movie. 1983. I went to go see this in the theater. Um, it, it had its moments. It had its moments. Also, there's a part in this movie that is relevant to today. I will explain that to you as well. So here we go. Olivia has a nightmare of a young girl being picked up as a hitchhiker and then murdered by an old man. Okay, so Olivia has ESP. The next day, four corner wagons show up to a residence, reports of six dead girls, one dead old man. The apartment's in shambles. The utensils are literally embedded into the walls of the apartment. While loading the old man's body onto the gurney, his hand falls down and the blue electrical charge discharges and cracks a hole in the ceiling. And the cops and the EMTs are looking like, what the fuck just happened? Okay? A spirit is then shown making its way to a mausoleum into a particular crypt. So we assume that this is the spirit of the old man finding its way, its resting place home. Okay? So then we have the subplot. Carol, Kitty, and Leslie are hazing a new recruit named Julie and to the sisters. So they're all in high school. Uh, Raymar, the dead old man, was a famous... Russian psychic. Olivia, the daughter, shows up to the funeral. Uh, she dodges questions 
about her father murdering the girls, the girls were not sexually abused. Raymar died of a heart attack. Okay? During the ceremony, Olivia gets a vision of a spirit terrifying female victims and dead bodies. She speaks to her father's crypt, saying she wishes she could have helped him. As Olivia walks away, the flowers are instantly dead. She, placed, she places fresh flowers on it on his, in front of his, his crypt. So when she walks away, cut shot, the flowers are dead. Okay? Julia wants to join the sisters. <clears throat> Steve, her boyfriend, doesn't want her to. After the funeral, Sam Dockstetter shows up. He used to work with Raymar. Sam speaks on bioenergy. It is a renewable energy source produced by living things. Raymar was telekinetic. Raymar was also a psychic vampire. Raymar could draw, or he could drain a person's bioenergy and use the energy to move and levitate things. So he's partly telekinetic as well. Here's the whole kicker. Sam said Raymar would pick up hitchhikers. He would frighten the victims beyond belief, then drain their energy from the adrenaline he stimulated. This movie came out in 1983. 1983. The negative energy is what killed Raymar. Sam says Raymar allowed himself to die. Uh, he gives her a bunch of uh, research tapes on her father. Steve then goes to visit Carol. He wants her to take it easy on Julie during the initiation. Steve and Carol used to date. So then later on, Carol and the sisters pick up Julie for her final initiation. Olivia's husband, played by Adam West, doesn't uh, believe in ESP or bioenergy. Olivia tells Alan, uh, Raymar stayed away from her her entire life. Olivia begins listening to the research tapes. <clears throat> the sisters then pull up to the mausoleum, the same mausoleum where Raymar is buried. The vase on Raymar's tomb, it falls down. Steve calls Julie's home. Raymar's tomb begins to crack. Olivia begins listening to Sam's tapes. Raymar displays uh, electrical discharges at will because he can shoot out blue bolts like Palpatine from Star Wars. He can shoot out blue electricity from his, from his body. Okay? The sisters plan on doubling back to scare Julie. Uh, one of the sisters gets out because she doesn't agree with the initiation. Steve goes looking for Julie at the boardwalk. Raymar begins drawing the energy from animals and using telekinesis to move, to, to move the dead body. So what he would do is take one dead body move it to scare the other animals and then draw off, their, draw off their fear. Okay? Kitty and Carol break into the mausoleum and manage to frighten Julie. Raymar's tomb exhibits more cracks in the crypt. Steve then runs into Leslie. Leslie tells them they're at the mausoleum. It's said that children of parents with psychic powers often have uh, inherent abilities, such as Olivia. That's why she's, she, she has ESP. Raymar was adamant about not involving Olivia, which is why she never got to see him like that. Raymar begins to move the chairs in the mausoleum, and then his coffin cracks open and is freed. Steve breaks into the mausoleum. In the tapes, Raymar has an evil air about him. Olivia then uses her ESP to see the mausoleum. 
she sees Carol and Kitty running in fear. Raymar then locks the mausoleum doors. Raymar then begins to open in the, open the other coffins of the dead bodies. So what happens is they all crack open and the coffins come out and then lower themselves on the ground. And then the doors slowly open. And then the dead bodies, if they still had eyelids, the eyes will open up, okay? So then Julie comes out of hiding from the flower room. She runs into Steve. They're surrounded by dead bodies and she sees Raymar. Olivia then pulls up, Steve is knocked unconscious. Okay, so then the dead bodies begin to move and chase down Carol and Kitty. Now this scene for me as a kid when I first seen it at the theaters always bothered me. Okay, the bodies begin to attack the girls, so they're, they're moving. So remember in Exorcist 3, there's a long shot of the hallway and you see the dead body just kind of float. Same thing here. So the dead bodies are floating because Raymar's controlling them, but then it gets surrounded and the bodies just like start headbutting the girls, right? They just start headbutting them, headbutting them. And it's just more bodies start piling on top of the girls. So then as they, they get knocked down, they've been beaten up and headbutted by skulls. And then the last two skull, uh, the last two dead bodies fall on top of the girls, basically killing them, okay? Olivia then shows up. Steve's knocked unconscious. Olivia then approaches Raymar's body. Because this whole time, his casket is open. These electrical charges are coming out of his eyes, okay? So then, he has, Julie, uh, he has Julie in a trance. Olivia grabs a mirror and places it in front of Raymar at the, at, at the electrical charges. And then reflects the charges back onto Raymar's body and melts his skull. Destroy, destroying the body and the spirit. And all the bodies just, just fall to the ground. Steve awakens and then they all walk out of the mausoleum. One Dark Night. I know it sounded kind of lame, but 1983. And the whole thing about scaring your victims and then drawing out the adrenaline, that was it for me. Mind you, this came out in 1983. All right? So that was One Dark Night. Here's my next before I get into my third breakdown, let me do this real quick. <coughs> Station, <I> <coughs> let me pause real quick. <coughs> nah, I'll just wait till I'm done. About an hour and fifteen minutes. Uh, yeah, I should be. I'll be done by then. Yo, welcome to the. You're watching the shit Morning Star Show featuring Super Slot Seventy Five. Shout out to our, our producers extraordinaire Cindy Ashby. www.onthewakeradio.com. Uh, all shows are live 24-7, 365. Catch replays on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google, Apple uh, Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Google Play. Um, okay, so third breakdown. We're going to do the howling. We're going to do the howling. If you're an old head, you know what I'm talking about. The howling. The howling, the howling, the howling. The Howling. What is this? What is this? 1981. The only thing that most of us remember from the Howling is the woman in black. If you're an old head, the only thing you remember from the Howling is the woman in black. And her scratching the dude's back. 
This was like the first werewolf movie on a ma on a major le on a major scale. Okay, the howling. So now, as we begin, <laughs> wait, <laughs> bear with me, bear with me. Ah, uh, shit. Okay, there we go. All right, opening scene. There's news reports about stories about mind and body and, and killings and all this type of stuff. So then there's a show. Dr. Wagner is speaking about repression. He says repression is the father of neurosis, self-hatred. He said stress results when you fight against yourself. The savage man. Man is learning and primitive. One shouldn't deny the beast within. Hmm. So then Karen's a news anchor, and she's tracking a story about a serial killer named Eddie. Karen is bait. She's used as bait to lure Eddie. Eddie calls Karen from a, uh, from a payphone. He tells her where to meet up. They meet up at a, uh, like a sex theater, okay? The cops lose the signal to track Karen. So they don't know where she's at at this point. Karen meets Eddie in the movie theater. Eddie is watching a rape snuff film. Okay. So then, cut back to Dr. Wagner. He has a book called The Gift of Life. There is a pyramid and an I over the letter I. Okay. Back to the movie theater. Eddie then transforms into his wolf state. So he tells her he's behind her. And he says, don't look at me. I'm about to show you something. So as he's transforming, she's looking at the theater, at the, at the screen. He transforms. The cops uh, get, a, get, a, get, a, get a signal back on her. They bust in. They shoot. And they thought they killed Eddie. Right? They shoot him in the head. Karen is so distraught she doesn't remember anything. Karen has a bad dream on the couch. She wakes up in a panic. Her friends, Chris and Terry... Follow a lead on Eddie. There's an altar. There's dead animal parts. There's drawings of wolves. The Wolfman and Karen. Okay, so Chris is Karen's producer, news newscast producer. Terry is his wife. Okay. Doctor Wagner then analyzes Eddie's art. Karen goes back on the air following her attack. She spazzes out. She freezes. And they take her off air. So she's not ready to come back. Okay? So then she goes to see Dr. Wagner. He, <coughs> Dr. Wagner, recommends her and her husband, Bill, spend time in his colony for group therapy. He only recommends this for special clients. Right? So they go up there. They meet some of the locals. Bill meets Marsha. Marsha is the woman in black. Marsha is this is the bitch you stay away from. This Marsha is the woman that takes men's uh, your husbands. Okay? Marsha is black leather, black hair, black black black. She is a gothy, good-looking woman. Okay? The, the the doctor meets Karen and Bill at the colony. Marsha then yells at Dr. Wagner over his book she says he's created enough problems see Dr. Wagner likes to spill secrets about certain things Marsha doesn't like it because it draws heat to them okay 
TC is looking at Karen. There's an old man, Earl. He tries to kill himself. He says he wants to end it all. Then Dr. Wagner calms him down. Later that night, Karen sees the old man, Earl, and is then awoken by howling sounds. So she hears the wolves howling at night. She wakes Bill in fear. Karen goes outside to investigate and hears something moving in the, in the bushes. She's being watched by T.C. Later on the next day, Karen meets Sheriff Sam. Chris and Terry go meet the coroner to go see Eddie's body. Somehow, Eddie clawed his way out of the freezer. So when they open the door, there's claw marks on the inside of the door and the body is gone. Karen and her friend Donna, they go out and find a dead dead uh, deer's head. Bill, the sheriff, Earl, and TC go looking for coyotes because they think it's a coyote that killed, that, that, that beheaded a deer, which is impossible. Karen has a session with Dr. Wagner. Terry and Chris read warlocks, werewolves, and demons. They grab a bunch of books on shapeshifters. Bill then agrees to see Marsha. He killed a rabbit and he takes the rabbit to her for her to skin it and cook it. She immediately, immediately tries to seduce Bill. Bill rebuffs her, her advances. Bill is being tracked by one of the pack members. And he's then attacked and bitten on the, on the, on the shoulder on his way back to the, to the cabin. Bill then goes to Dr. Wagner. He gets stitched up. Karen wants to go home. Okay. Chris and Terry get a call from Bill saying he was attacked by a wolf. The movie that they're watching has the old lady saying at the end, whoever is bitten by a wolf and lives will become a wolf. Terry then goes to visit Karen and Bill, so she leaves Chris behind. Chris stays behind. Bill begins to eat his hamburgers raw. So there's this thing in in this movie. Marsha likes her, her... her burgers raw, her meat raw. So there was one point when she's cooking, someone asked her, well, how you like your, your, your burgers? She says raw. So then Bill begins to eat his burgers raw. Later on that night, Bill rejects Karen's sexual advances. Karen has more nightmares and then wakes up to find Bill missing. Bill's in the woods in his robe he meets Marsha they begin to have sex by the fire and then other wolves howl in unison Terry hears the howling then she records it Marsha begins to lick the wound on on Bill's shoulder they begin to transform into the wolf state as they have sex so as the scene pans out you see them transforming into wolves, right? Dr. Wagner hears the consummation because he can hear the wolves. Marsha then scratches Bill's back. Bill returns home or to the cabin the next day. Terry goes to Eddie's uh, home out there in the colony, recognizes one of his drawings. It's the same place that they're at now. Terry's name is Whispered. She's being tracked. Terry goes to a cabin. There's animal pelts everywhere. Uh, she enters the cabin. 
She then takes pics. There's bones and newspaper articles everywhere. Then there's a growling. Then there's a knocking. And then TC, not Eddie, TC bursts through the door. See, when I first watched this, I thought it was Eddie. It was actually TC. So what ends up happening is he attacks her. She ends up chopping his arm off with an, with an axe. And then it turns into a human hand, right? So then she runs and ends up in Dr. Wagner's office trying to get away from, uh, from TC. So the crazy part is she's on the phone with Terry. I mean, she's on, she's on the phone with Chris. She's like, hey, I think I'm in the doctor's office. I'm being chased by a wolf. He's like, okay, do you see any files? Is there a file cabinet? She's like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, don't hang up. So she's on the phone going through the files. She opens the file cabinet. She's going through the files. And she's placing the files on the cabinet. And then uh, this large hand grabs one of the files and places it down. Freaked me the fuck. I said, God damn, I wasn't ready for that shit. I totally forgot that scene happened. So she's on a, so you see it like, that is the edge of the camera, right? And you just see a hand just come and grab the file. Holy shit. So you got this big ass eight foot wolf. <laughs> There's this big ass eight foot wolf and it's the canine four or five variety. So in werewolf lore, there's seven variants of wolves, okay? They're, they're called variants. Uh, some have like a jackal short muzzle. Then you have the classic pointy ear, long muzzle with the big hulking uh, human frame. So there's seven different types of, of werewolves, all right? This one fits mainly, you know what? Fuck it, let's look it up right now. I'm sorry, y'all. My bad. Let's look this shit up right the fuck now. Hold up. Hold up. Do a screen share. We're going to do this together. We're going to do this together. Let me do it. Oh, well, let me do it. Oh, it's not going to let me do it. Uh, mother fudge. Nah, it's not going to let me do it. Okay, it's security files. My bad, y'all. Amen. Put on tab. Let's do this. I'll change it. I'll change it up. Hold up. Where wolf types images? There's one list that I found, and it gives the seven types. So y'all just bear with me, okay? Here we go. This is what I'm looking for. These are the type of variant wolves, wolf variants here. Okay? So you have the type one, type three variant one is more like an ape version. You have type three variant two is somewhat common. I've never heard of the type three variant type. That looks like a completely like a complete ape at this point. Now here's the more popular ones at the very bottom. So shit I don't do that don't do that I just fucked it up I just fucked it up did I just fuck it up okay here we go so here 
Canine Variant 1. That's a common. It's like a standing timber wolf. This one here, Variant 2 Canine. This is the one with the shortened muzzle, like a hyena. This is probably the most popular one here of, of, of them all. It's Canine Variant 3. It's the long, strong-boned, pointy-eared one. So this is what they pretty much all look like. The tall, pointy-eared, the bipedal. Um, this one, not so much Variant 4. So this, so this pack is pretty much Canine Variant 3. Alright? Okay. My bad. Everybody get that? Okay, cool. Alright. So, uh, where am I? Where am I? Picks. Crawling and knocking. Okay, so then TC grabs the file. She's on the phone. She said, oh my God. She thinks it's Eddie. She tells Chris Eddie isn't dead, but the shapeshifters are real. Okay, so then it backs, uh, backs Terry into a corner. She then turns on the light. She temporarily blinds TC. Uh, so then the wolf, TC grabs her with one hand, lifts her up. And strangles her, but the whole time he's strangling her, he's like he's growling in her face. It's like Arr! and she's like, <laughs> and she he strangles her to death, right? Chris, hearing all this on the phone, loads up a bunch of silver bullets. Okay, because the old man in the store told them silver bullets can kill wolves. Karen then goes to Doctor Wagner's office to find Terry's throat ripped out. He finds her body throat ripped out. So then Karen then turns around to grab the phone. She then hears howling outside. She, is, she then turns around and bumps back into what she thought was Terry's body. And then Eddie shows up. He jumps from underneath the, the covers, right? Eddie has a bullet hole in his head from the cops shooting him the, the, couple, the few nights previous. So he's already got the yellow eyes, got the fangs going. He's already looking freakish. Okay, so he's got this huge bullet hole in his head. So then he begins to dig the bullet hole out of his forehead. And then he begins to transform. Now this was pre-Werewolf uh, and uh, American Werewolf. Remember, remember the transformation scene in American Werewolf in London? How, you know, I forget who, if it was Rick Baker or Stan Winston. One of those two guys did the makeup and transformation on this. So this transformation took about a good 15, 20 minutes. Because <laughs> they showed everything like, so he, his face, the bones are bulging, right? And then everything is shaking, and the jaws protruding. I mean, it, for its time, for 1981, this was pretty good uh, special effects. So it took about a good seven to eight minutes of film time. You're watching this thing for like seven, eight minutes of him just transform, okay? And, and um, yeah, when he had the fangs and the jaw come out, and then his, his it, it's... it's vibrating and then his his limbs are extending and the fangs are coming the claws are coming out okay so she's just all in shock and I'm just like oh god damn okay so then <laughs> Karen then throws sulfuric acid on Terry now mind you she's in a doctor's office so yes there will be sulfuric acid laying around she burns him with that Karen then runs to her car sheriff brings Karen to the pack kidnapper. Earl and, and all the others are waiting. They're all in the barn. And here comes the sheriff with Karen at, at gunpoint. Dr. Wagner then walks in. And she goes, oh, Dr. Wagner. He pushes her off. 
right? The pack members begin to explain. He explains. The, they all explain to Karen the, the benefits of being a pack member. Okay. They say, accept the gift. Accept the gift. Earl, the old man, still views humans as prey. The doctor wants to still fit in. So there's this ideolog ideolog ideological uh, discord between Earl and the pack and the doctor. The doctor is like um, ex Charles Xavier. He wants to fit in and not offend. And they're like, man, these, these, this, is, this is food to us. We don't want to fit in with these people. We are the superior beings. Okay? So then TC shows Karen his missing hand. Right? And then um, Marsha walks in and she claws, she claims Karen for the pack. All right? So then the sheriff pistol whips the doctor. So they pretty much have turned on the doctor at this point. Earl says, you can't tame what's natural. Chris then shows up, and then he goes to the doctor's office. He sees the, 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 what, what took place. Eddie then breaks in. Right? No, it was TC. I'm sorry. At the barn, it's TC. Eddie's at the doctor's office. He ambushes Chris. He takes Chris's 308 rifle. Right? So then Eddie's face is half burned. And as Chris is listening to a recording of him killing Terry on, on a video recorder, right? So then Eddie's like, hey, man, listen. Um, you know, this is not going to do anything because he doesn't know about civil bullets. He said, you know what? Here, take, take your gun back and you can try. So not knowing, silver bullets are loaded in. So then Eddie gives Chris his gun back. Then he gets a transform. Then Chris shoots Eddie with silver bullets, killing him. He shoots him in the neck then shoots him in the chest. He kills Eddie. Chris then shows up at the barn. And then he shoots and kills TC. Chris then kills another pack member. So then Chris kills Dr. Wagner. Before Dr. Wagner dies, he says, thank God. Chris then locks the pack in the barn and then sets it on fire. Chris and Karen drive off in his Mazda. Sheriff Sam is waiting for them down the road. Sheriff Sam is Dan Werewolf. And he begins shooting at Chris's car. So there's a shootout between the sheriff and Chris. And they're shooting out with fucking rifles, okay? With bolt action rifles. So then uh, they kill the sheriff, they take the sheriff's vehicle, and then while they get in, they're surrounded by wolves. Okay, mind you, these are all eight, eight feet tall, pointy-eared, bipedal wolves, and they're trying to break into the car and kill them, okay? So then, as they escape and drive off, one wolf breaks into the back seat of the car. It bites Karen in the shoulder. She takes the gun and then shoots the wolf, killing the wolf. The wolf's body is in the back seat. She looks back. It was Bill. How you know it was Bill? Because Bill has a U.S. Marine Corps tattoo on his arm. So this whole time, Bill has been chilling with the pack. So then later, they escape. They leave the colony. They set it on fire. So then um, later, Karen goes back on the air the next day while reports on the colony fire are being reported. Okay, uh, so then Karen goes on air. She goes off script. She begins reading a monologue about humans and animals, right? She then says there's a secret society living amongst them. She then, she mentions monsters and mutations and that she has proof. And she's going to show them tonight. 
So then all of a sudden, her eyes turn turn really glossy, like really, um, ooh, like a bright yellow, right? So she begins to transform on air. And then Chris, her producer, steps in and, 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 hit, and shoots her one time with the rifle, kills her. They cut the feed. Because the, the station manager's like, what the hell is this? And the, her her, co- her anchor's like, you know, and he, he cut out. So everybody's watching this woman transform into a wolf. Then there's a scene with the little kids. And mom's like, what are you guys watching? Hey, we're watching the news lady turn into a werewolf. <laughs> and so then, there, then there's a scene in the bar. And everybody's just chilling watching this shit like it's nothing. Right? So after they cut the feed, right? And then it goes back to the same, the very same bar. One guy says, well, yeah, you know it's real. That's why they cut the feed. So the next guy at the end of the bar, he asks the woman, hey, uh, honey, how do you want your burger? It's Marsha. She says, raw. The Howling 1981. Nigga. <laughs> Classic. This was a classic movie. Classic, classic, classic. All right, all right. Let me do one more station identification uh, before I get into uh, this next breakdown. I've got an hour left, 50 minutes left. I should be good. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, you are now watching uh, Super Slot 75, the Morning Star Show. Um, shout out to our producer, uh, Extraordinary Cindy Ashby. Follow us on www.onthewakeofradio.com. All shows are live on The Wake of Radio. Uh, catch us uh, on replays for SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Google Play. And you can always find me on YouTube on the Super Slot 75 or Heavily Flawed Individual. So, this next movie is very, very important. Not because I say so. Uh, Curly Bester, thank you. Thank you for the cash chat. I mean, it is important. It's important. It, it, it's still it's still relevant to, to today's times, and I'm going to explain to y'all why. All right, so bear with me. All right, 1988, Alien Nation, Black people. This is about you. Sorry, not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. Now, this could lead into another debate about certain races of people being created for certain positions in life. Not here for that. I am not here for that. But there's too many, there's too many cues in this movie for you not to want to perk your ears or at least an eyebrow and be like, okay, wait a minute, what are they really saying? They just not really hitting me with the live. Well, that's that's fucked up. Okay. All right. Alienation. Nineteen eighty-eight. Y'all ready? Here we go. So it's in the future, LA, nineteen ninety-one. They have landed, and now are amongst us. <coughs> They're called newcomers. They're called newcomers. Newcomers are genetically engineered slaves. They're genetically engineered for hard labor. They traveled on what are called 
slave ships. They have no way back home. This is in the first two minutes of this movie. So the American people are upset. There's job loss. There's immigration issues. Ronald Reagan accepts the newcomers. He releases them from quarantine. There's a joke about a green card. They say, oh, there's a joke about Fred Astaire and Ginger Slag. They're called slags. There's slag town. There's advertising. There's slag hookers. There's homeless slags. Rambo 6 is in the theaters. Detectives Sykes and and Tuggle patrol slag town. They see a 211 in progress. It's a slag on slag robbery. The store clerk is murdered. A shootout ensues. Tuggle seeks cover behind a car. The slag loads armor-piercing rounds into his shotgun and begins to shoot the car up. So everybody remembers the trailer when you see Tuggles is backing up as the the impact just keeps getting closer and closer to Tuggle as he's backing up because it's going literally going through the car. Okay, so at the, he reaches he gets to the very end of the car and then takes it in the chest. But he dies. Don't get me wrong. He dies in this movie. Now the series, the the TV series, they that was a main uh, focal point for the series. Like, how did Tuggle really die? So in the series, they said Tuggle died from another bullet shot from the front and not from the back. So there was this whole thing in the series about cop corruption, working with other slags. And Tuggle and Sykes had stumbled onto something bigger than what this in this movie. You understand? So either somehow in the in the TV series, Tuggle would have survived the shot from the shotgun round, but not him being shot from the front. This you had to really know the series to know what the fuck I'm talking about. Because right now you're like, this is some bullshit. So I was really into this shit back then. Alright. So then <laughs> wait, wait, wait. wait. Um, the slang over his rent. Tuggles killed Sykes, played by James Conn. He chases down one of the slags. The slags then uh, opens a, a, a vial and swallows a bunch of a, a bunch of liquid, like just detergent, right? And then becomes enhanced and then runs towards Sykes. Sykes uh, empties an entire clip of nine millimeter rounds into this this slag before it's it's finally killed. Okay. The slag, the second slag drops in behind him and tries to break his back before backup and reinforcements arrive. Okay? Sykes then goes out to... He's, uh... As the officers arrive, there is a slag officer. And so out of uh, his disgust and him being upset that Tuck was killed, he punches the slag officer in the face. Out of anger. It says Tugs was killed by BRI-7 rounds... They say a vest wouldn't have, would have been useless because they left their vest in the trunk of their car before they pursued that 211. Sykes is estranged from his adult daughter. A slag officer has been promoted to detective. It's the same slag Sykes punched out the night before. Sykes volunteers to take the slag detective as a partner. His name is Sam Francisco. 
So they be giving themselves all these crazy ass names and shit. Listen, y'all know how it is when you come across certain groups of people that came here um, unbeknownst and they have all these crazy ass names like, bruh, okay, then same thing here, all right? They take on a murder case of a newcomer named Henry. Psych, Sykes then calls him George. He says, no, I'm not going to call you San Francisco. I'm going to call you George. So he calls him George. Sykes, Sykes, because of what happened, it took him 16 rounds to drop a slag. He goes to buy a 454 Casal. Now, I didn't know this was a real caliber or a real gun, but the 454 Casal is a very real pistol. They still make it to this day. Where the fuck is it? Okay. 454 Casal is basically a 45 cartridge lengthened. Okay? It let me get into this. It's called the Wildcat cartridge. It was created in 1957 by Dick Casal. Alright? So basically what this thing does. The basic design was a lengthened and structurally improved 45 Colt case. All right. Now here's where the, the here's where it comes in. Like it was first commercialized in '98. The round is one of the most powerful handgun cartridges in production. The 454 Casal generates almost five times the recoil of a 45 Colt. So if you fire a 45 1911, you know it, it has a, a, a serious kick to it. It also has about 75% more energy recall than a 44 Magnum. It can deliver a 250 grain bullet with a muzzle velocity of over 1,900 feet per second. That's rifle territory. Okay? It also develops up to 2,000 feet of pounds per second of energy from a handgun. So this thing is mainly for medium and large gain. So this is a real fucking thing. So this is what he uses in the in, in the movie to, to shoot at to shoot at the takedown slags. All right, who knew? All right, getting back to it. So then Sykes goes to the police. Uh, the police. Uh, what is it? Hey, what is that? The shoot the gun range. Go to the gun range and he puts a vest on top of the target and then he pushes the button back and he just fires. The Casal and it just, it just punches right through the vest, through the target, through everything, right? So everyone was looking at him like, what the hell? And he's like, I'm not taking any chances with your people, blah, 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 blah. They killed my friend, you know, so message, was, he gave him a message. All right, so then they go see the bodies of from the previous night robbery, one of the dead slags. George talks to a slag coroner about one of the dead slags. So they're, they're speaking in their, in their native tongue. And then Sykes is looking like, okay. So there's a secret they're hiding. Slags work in methane refineries because methane does not affect them. The plant manager oversees a batch of liquid that enhances the slags. So he's illegally making this batch of chemicals that in, that physically enhances the slags. Okay. A slag named William Harcourt is being celebrated by the mayor. Uh, the slag from the robbery takes a drop of a liquid in the bathroom. So the guy, the one slag that tried to break his back from the night before is at this event. He's Harcourt's assistant. His name is Roger, right? Sykes and then George question Harcourt about his dead business partner, Henry. This is the store clerk earner. Uh, the, not the store clerk, but 
but the dead body, the dead slag from the case that, that they're working on. So Sykes wants to use this case to transition to make a lead into Tuggle's case. That's the only reason why he took George on as a partner because he knew that he could tie the two together, he'd have a case, all right? So then, here we go. Slags were bred for adaptability. That's their strength. George learned English in three months. Uh, they eat their food raw for better nutrient absorption. Sykes and George go to a slag town looking for a slag named Porter. Sykes then knees Porter in the crotch to no effect. George tells Sykes a blow to the nerve plexus underneath arm, armpits will give him the, the same desired effect to the knee, as a knee to the groin. Harcourt then threatens uh, slag Joshua Strader for not wanting to distribute his drugs. So now they're at the beach and Strader's tied to the, the front of the car, chained to the front of the car there at the beach. And Harcourt's like, you don't want to do this for us? And Strader's like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. So then Strader refuses and is dragged into the seawater. It's like battery acid to the slags. And then Harcourt tells Roger to deal with the cops. So there's a scene when Roger and Harcourt are at the, at the beach's edge and the water comes up and Roger steps back and Harcourt's like, you need to learn to embrace your fears. Okay? Sykes and George then go to a strip club to question a slag stripper that's an associate of Harcourt. So then, <laughs> so while he's questioning the woman, the slag woman, the stripper, of course there's the, the scene where she gets naked and he's looking at her and she's got the leopard spots all down her spine and he's like, okay, aside from her big head, she pretty much looks like a woman. And she's like, hey, um, you have you ever been with a slag woman? He's like, no. She's like, don't you want to? And he's like, don't, she says, you're, you're a prostitute, don't you? You don't charge for money? She's like, why would I charge for something I enjoy? Nigga. <laughs> I was like, okay. Okay. So then after that, Sykes begins to slowly bond with George and open up to George about his relationship with his daughter. So that he's drinking alcohol. George is drinking spoiled milk. So spoiled milk to them is like the alcohol. So at the very beginning of the movie, when the homeless drag slag came up to, to, to George's car, he had a bottle of, he had a carton of spoiled milk. That's alcohol to them. All right. George tells Sykes, he named his son after Richard Nixon. Sykes tells him to say he named him after the actor Richard Burton and not Nixon, just because. George then tells Sykes, humans are a special people. A tow truck then tries to implant a bomb uh, into Sykes' car the following morning, but George, uh, but Sykes, no, no. George passed out in the back seat. He stops the bad guy from putting a bomb in the car, but the, the guy runs off and escapes because George is still drunk from the spoiled milk from the night before. Okay? George tells Sykes his wife is a progressive. They find Strader's body. George is nervous about going near the beach. The coroner tells Sykes about a blood test on the dead slag. George is hiding the results of that test. So... Sykes finally confronts George in the elevator. He says, you know, the secret you're hiding, what the hell is it? He says the drug is called Jabruka. It's a potent narcotic. In the mines, they were given small doses as a reward. So the more you worked, the harder you worked, the more you got. The more you got, the harder you worked, okay? The dead store owner was an organic engineer. William Harcourt, 
So they go to the, they go to the, the the computer specialist and they run down all the suspects and the list of dead slags and the and the connections. So William Harcourt, Cecil Porter, Josh Strader, and William Hubley were all in quarantine together. Uh, so Porter was a chemist, Strader was a he worked distribution, Hubley was the cover. And then Harcourt pretty much killed them all for the operation to take over for himself. Okay. Sykes and then George then interrogate the refinery plant manager and discover the narcotic. So this is when pretty much George goes on a rampage and starts busting up the narcotics uh, setup for the drugs. Okay. Uh, George then breaks protocol to go after Harcourt. Harcourt then presents the narcotic to, to a slag and human dealers for sale. So... The slags know what it is. The human guy, he, he tastes, tries it. He's like, oh, I just like this detergent. He said, that's all it would, it would do to you. It's just nothing. No effect on them. But he says, to my people, they know the rewards of this particular drug. Okay. George then interrupts the meeting with armed with the C4. Uh, after learning Hardcore had killed Strader, Cassandra, the stripper, she attempts to kill Hardcore. Roger then disarms the C4 and subdues George before Roger can kill George. Sykes shows up armed with the 454. Saving George. All right. Roger and then Hardcore escape in a police vehicle. A car chase ensues. So they're headed down the 110 South. They're going to the beach. They play chicken and they crash head on. So Sykes and George, Roger and Hardcore, they play chicken and they crash head on. So then Roger's unconscious. George is unconscious. Hardcore takes his shipment, followed by Sykes. The cop car Roger's in, it blows up, killing Roger. Sykes then uh, corners Hardcore. Hardcore then cracks open a vial and consumes the drug. Hardcore appears to OD. Backup shows. The coroner takes Hardcore's body. George uh, shares a joke with Sykes. He says, hey, I want to share a joke with you. He says, okay, what is it? He says, it's the why did the chicken cross the road? <laughs> they, laugh, they, have, they share a laugh, right? A beat cop then asks Sykes about reporting a shooting. Sykes says there was no shooting, just an OD. So then George looks like, what the fuck? So then in the coroner van, Hardcore wakes up and then kills the coroner, the drivers in the coroner's truck. He rips their hearts out. All right, kills the officers. George and Sykes then discover the scene. George tells Sykes a massive amount of drugs appeared as an OD, but it's in, it's in an incubation as the slag becomes metamorphosized. George tells Sykes what would happen if humans saw what the slags were truly capable of. Sykes then encounters Harcourt and shoots him three times with the 454. No effect. Harcourt and Sykes jump into a passing skipper ship. George then catches a helicopter flight to catch the boat. Sykes then throws himself in Harcourt into the water. As Harcourt begins to burn, he attempts to drown Sykes. George has the pilot lower the chopper into the water to, to rescue Sykes. As Harcourt uh, is still strangling Sykes, George wraps his hand with a jacket and sticks his hand in the, in the water. And, you know, for an actor, he let out the most agonizing scream I've ever heard a man. Like, this isn't damn good acting. So he sticks his hand in the, in, into the salt water. And he's just smoking. He's burning. He's trying to find Hark, uh, Sykes' body. And he's just letting out the most agonizing scream. <laughs> so then he finally recognize, He finally uh, pulls Sykes out. Right? He rescues Sykes. And then 
two or three days later, they're all bandaged up. And then George and Sykes attend his daughter's wedding. And as Sykes walks his daughter down the, down the aisle, George goes to, uh, to his wife and they watch the wedding. Alienation. Alienation, y'all. 1988. Ooh, shit. <clears throat> yeah. I'm sorry. Let, you know, let's do some interaction. Let me go through the, these comments. I'm sorry. Forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. Let's go through some comments. Uh... <laughs> yeah, so... Uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wake the hell up. What's happening, bro? I see you. I see you. Diana's in the house. COVID goon. COVID goon, bro. Let me know when you want to wanna stream, bro. I still owe a stream to Samir, man. Samir, if you're listening, bro, I ain't forget you. Um, <laughs> there are different kinds of vampire. Yeah, I listen. I already got my vampire movies. I got this. Okay, that's what I do. I got this. Trust me. I'm sunken one. What's happening? Um, you know what? In the movie, it didn't imply they had a religion. And yeah, in the TV, like I said, you had to you had to be really in, immersed into the TV series. The TV series broke down a lot of shit. Maybe one day I'll go over the, the, the TV series, like the first season, and and kind of put some things together. But the TV series went really, really in depth because what ended up happening was Sykes did end up in a relationship with the slag with a female slag. So in the series, he did end up having a slag girlfriend. You know what I'm saying? So um, TV series explored a lot, a lot of stuff, you know. Uh, okay, so let me... Do I want to do another... Okay, let me do my final announcement, and then we're going to get into the movie, the most important movie, probably breakdown I've ever done. Ever. 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 Bear with me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's a lot of notes. Y'all, just, y'all don't understand my, my notebooks. My notebooks are crazy. Oh, yo. So, Morningstar Show features Super Slide 75. Uh, visit us on www.onthewakeradio.com. All shows are live 24 7. Uh, catch the replays always on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google, uh, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Google Play. I am. You can find me on YouTube, Super Slide 75, and a heavily flawed individual. Yada, yada, yada. All right. Let's get into it. This, bar none. Because, you know, we want to talk about sovereign and public and private. Um, this movie addresses all of that. This is probably, the, for me, the most important breakdown I've, I've, I've done to date. This was a deep, deep, deep movie. Deep. Deep. Not like I'd say it too many times, but... I'm sorry, I'm, everyone's like hitting me up all at the same time. All right. The Postman, 1997, Kevin Costner. <sighs> People sleep on Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner really does a lot of deep movies. Field of Dreams was deep. Waterworld, even though it was a commercial flop, was a deep movie. The Postman, flop, deep movie. People really sleep on Kevin Costner, man. All right, so let's get into it. <laughs> <clears throat> this, is, this is going to be a good one. All right. 
there's riots, hate crimes, violence, militia groups. 2013, Salt Flats, Utah. A girl is speaking about her father. There's a lion in the Salt Flats. There's a lion in the Salt Flats of Utah. There's a, there was a three-year winter where it's called Dirty Snow. Now, he has no name. He's just called the Postman, or they call him Shakespeare, okay? So what his character does, he goes around to different towns. He performs Shakespeare for um, food and shelter. And then he goes to the next town and performs Shakespeare for, the, for, for whatever town he, he, he encounters, okay? On his way, during his travels, he has to check the water levels before he lets his mule can drink the water. He finds an abandoned Phillips 76 gas station. He finds cigarettes and says he's rich. Then the postman puts on a play for children. General Bethlehem shows up and the kids then reenact the postman's play. The general wants tax, tribute, and he wants all men 15 to 50 and of suitable ethnicity are required to join his army. They are a neo-fascist militia. He wants pure bloods. He rejects a mongoloid. They're called the United Nations of Nathan Holm. It was a KKK group led by Nathan Holm created the breakdown of society through hate crimes and racially motivated attacks. The KKK is a private group. They are a private group. Okay? Private versus public. You have I a, didn't understand that. It, I want nobody talking to you. Turn yourself off. You had a private group waging a war against a public government. Okay? Here we I'm, I'm going I'm just going to get into it. So then the uh, Bethlehem catches the postman. Bethlehem and postman go back and forth about Shakespeare. Okay? Bethlehem beats up the postman. A captive mulatto bonds with the postman. He was inspired by his play earlier that day. <coughs> the next day, they run 20 miles with full gear. During dinner, the postman learns they're feeding everyone his mule. So the mule that he was so fond of in the very beginning, they're being fed his mule. He refuses to eat. There's a retarded guy played by Giovanni Ribisi. There's a lot of people in this movie, okay? He doesn't get to eat because he comes in last. So then the postman gives him his, his, his portion. The troops then choose to watch The Sound of Music. Synchronicity. I'm going off topic. So Christopher Plummer died earlier today. Christopher Plummer was in The Sound of Music. And now I'm doing a breakdown of a music of, of, of a movie that played a clip, Sound of Music. Synchronicity, people. I'm just saying. All right. All recruits are branded with the number eight for the eight laws of Nathan Holm. First law is obey orders without question. Second is punishment shall be swift, 
Number three, mercy is for the weak. Number four, terror will defeat reason. Number five, your allegiance is to the clan. Number six, justice can be dictated. Number seven, any clansman may challenge for leadership of the clan. Number eight, penalty is death. So while he's reading off these number, these eight uh, rules of engagement or articles or whatever, he, they already strapped up one recruit because he didn't sit down fast enough. So recruit number one, uh, he broke rule number one, is, and then he's hung upside down, and then Bethlehem stabs him with his saber. Colonel Getty, Bethlehem's number two in charge, was the last man to challenge Bethlehem in the fight. The fight lasted six seconds. Bethlehem cut out his tongue and cut off his scrotum, and he's been loyal to Bethlehem ever since. Captain Idaho tells Woody, the mulatto, the general doesn't see it, but I say you got some nigger in you. Hmm. The postman and then Bethlehem have an audience. The, Bethlehem says before the fall of civilization, Bethlehem sold copy machines. He was a salesman before all this took place. He says Nathan Holmes saved him. Bethlehem then orders the postman Shakespeare book be burned. The postman has a plan to escape. During a trip, the postman is told to go into the bush to kill that very lion from the very beginning of the movie. It killed two of their soldiers, and he's only armed with a knife. They send him off with a knife, they go in there, and they go kill a lion. The postman finds and returns a dead soldier's body, and then he executes his plan. He falls into the river, off the bridge. They begin to shoot at him. Woody, the mulatto, is sent after the postman with the, along with the retarded guy and Captain Idaho. Okay. As they go down, he goes downstream, he gets out the water, whatever case, now he's on foot. So the retard confronts uh, the postman first. And before he can let the others know, the postman stabs him and kills him. Gotta do it. Woody then shows up, followed by Captain Idaho. They surround the postman. Woody says, no harness on my back. Now, in the beginning of the movie, during the play, he's given the, the last monologue of the, of the Shakespeare speech. And the last part of that speech is in regards to freedom is no harness on my back. So Woody says, no harness on my back, then throws a knife at the postman, but it then strikes Captain Idaho in the shoulder. So then Woody then charges Idaho, but Idaho pulls out his forty-five and shoots Woody as he falls on top of him. Okay. Woody's dead. This allows the postman to escape. So now while Idaho is in, he gets up and goes looking for the postman, the lion shows up and kills Idaho. And they can all, and, uh, and, and, and General Bethlehem and the troops can all hear him screaming as the lion is like, as he's mauling them to death, right? So they think it's all of them, they think they're all dead because they never came back. Postman then finds an old U.S. postal truck with a long dead body inside of it because it's raining and it's cold and he hops into the vehicle. He takes the postal uniform off the skeleton, finds a lighter and a whiskey flask and an undelivered mail. He begins to read some of the mail and then he uses some of the mail for a fire. The next day, he buried the dead body. The postman then comes to Pineview. Now, mind you, he's an actor. He's an actor, Okay. 
he shows up to Pineview, says he, he's saying he's on official business. He tells Sheriff Briscoe he's a representative of the U.S. government authorized by Order 417 of the Restored Congress established by the communication rule of Lowell, Oregon. <laughs> this whole public versus private thing, you're going to learn today. He reminds Briscoe that tampering with the mail is a federal offense. So if you work for the mail, uh, USPS, this is your movie. This is your movie, okay? He reads the address of Irene March, and then the sheriff stands down. So what happens is the sheriff has a gun pointed at him. He says, I'm going to give you till three. So he he starts reading off mail, and he reads off Irene March. Irene March is in the town. So the sheriff's like, okay, you might have something here. Let's, let's, Let's see how this goes out. The letter... So then they they, they, they they go to the crowd, the crowd parts, and it's a little blindly. She's like, I'm Irene March. The letter is read to Irene because Irene is blind. Now, these people in this movie either are, can't just, a lot of them can't read for whatever reason, fall of civilization. A lot of these people cannot read or they a lot of misspellings, okay? The postman says he's taking new correspondence. The letter was from Irene's sister from Denver 15 years ago. Irene then calls him a godsend, and he cracks a joke about putting dogs on a leash while he's there. That's the old mailman's joke about dogs always attacking mailmen. They didn't get it, but he, whatever. So, the the, the second important piece of all this is the young brother, his name is Ford Lincoln Mercury. He brings his uh, uniform to him clean and pressed. The postman hides his eight brand. Okay, so Ford Lincoln Mercury, played by Lorenz Tate, is inspired by all of this. All right, his name used to be John Stevens, but he changed it at the last minute. The postman then arrives to dinner. The people want to know about the government. They ask, "Is there a president?" He says, "Yeah, his name is Richard Starkey, from Maine." There's a slogan. His slogan is, "Stuff's getting better every day." And then they ask more about um, they they ask about the the the, the two party system. He says there there are no more parties. He says it's the individual that counts. Somebody asks about Europe, and then a woman asks about the wholeness because that's that crew is Nathan's um, General Bethlehem's army is called the wholeness, right? The postman says the government just started. You gotta give him time. He says. And they'll be on their own for about six to eighteen months, all right. And then uh, Irene's daughter says, "Hey, give the man a break. He's tired. He just came in. Let him eat." So they they let him eat. They all say a prayer before they eat their food, all right. So then he meets Abby. She questions him about his health and sexual history. She wants him to impregnate her. Abby introduces her husband Michael to him. He's unable to impregnate her, okay? Uh, because uh, when Michael was young, he had a case of the bad mumps when he was 12. They've been trying for three years to have a baby. He tells the couple he'll think about it. Blind Irene gives the postman another letter for a sister up north, but she doesn't have an address. She says... Uh, she has a good feeling about him and that he'll do what's right. He takes the letter. The postman attempts to sneak out of town and steal a horse. An old man points him to the Pineview Post Office. Ford 
then asked him about how to become a postman. And he, and then uh, the postman says, well, only another postman can swear in a postman. So then he swears in uh, Lincoln as a postman. They can't read. You know, he uses the the, uh, the USPS slogan, nor rain, nor sleep, blah, 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 can stop the mail. He uses that creed to swear they swear in men because they can't read alright okay so then Briscoe the sheriff he has doubts about the postman he, he tells him yeah, these people don't need dreams man they need something real and then Abby visits him later on that night in his room she offers herself to him they have sex she leaves him a red ribbon the townsfolk the next day give him a horse and he takes off oh wait a minute okay as he as he trots off a little girl sings America the Beautiful Briscoe conflicted and then he rides up to the postman and says man are you really who you say you are he says well there's only one way to find out then the sheriff gives him a letter Ford then cleans up the post office General Bethlehem and the eights show up to post view. He asks, who's responsible for that flag being raised? Briscoe tries to protect Ford because Ford's like, man, no, fuck them. Bethlehem makes Michael, uh, Abby's husband, set the flag on fire, then set the post office on fire. General Bethlehem says the United States does not exist. It's an abomination. The people pay tribute. Bethlehem wants Abby. Michael tells Bethlehem that's his wife. Bethlehem explains to Michael about the feudal system. Lords and vassals. If a vassal got married, it was the Lord's right to sleep with that married vassal. Bethlehem wants Michael's blessing. Michael tells him he can't do it. So then Bethlehem says what made the nation weak were the I can'ts. Bethlehem says he will be the father of a new nation because he can. Bethlehem then draws his saber, then stabs and kills Michael. Abby goes crazy, and the town folks are angry. Briscoe tells Bethlehem about the postman. Ford says the United States government... Um, wait, 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 wait. Ford said... Oh, yes. So then Ford had, had shouted out, the United States government... Sent, sent him so Ford like really believes in this okay Bethlehem sends four patrols in all four directions to find a postman Ford mounts a horse and then a, and a postman outfit and he takes what mail he can down south okay the postman delivering mail in Benning Oregon as an eight uh, as an eight patrol with Bethlehem show up in Benning Benning the two guards at Benning refuse to open the door per they have a rep for the United States and they says uh Bethlehem's army is illegal. So you have a private entity saying a public entity is, is, is illegal and vice versa. Do you understand? Okay. The mayor frantically tries to open the, the gates for Bethlehem. The postman tells the mayor to negotiate a settlement. The postman begins negotiations with Bethlehem. Bethlehem does not recognize the postman because he's all shaved and clean now. Okay. Doesn't recognize like this is the guy that on the bridge that you argued with Shakespeare about. He doesn't recognize him at all. 
So then the postman begins to negotiate. Bethlehem doesn't uh, recognize the postman. Bethlehem says he was at the Battle of Georgetown and, and watched the White House burn to the ground. So he was there in the war. Okay. The postman tells Bethlehem the new capital is based in Minneapolis under Herbert Humphrey at the Metrodome. Bethlehem rejects the offer and, and orders the troops to fire at the gates and invade the town. Abby plots her escape. The mayor is killed. Abby kills two men and hits the general in the arm. Uh, the postman gets on a horseback and rescues Abby as they ride out of town. The postman has been shot. Abby retreats with the postman to a safety uh, to a to a cabin in safety. It's now winter, so now months have gone by, Mon- many months, 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 months. So then, Abby finds his eight brand. Abby tells the postman Michael is dead and holds a blade to his throat. Abby has become frustrated with the postman's apathy because he refuses to walk. He's like, I, I've been shot. I, I can't walk. So she has to go out and forage for food and. And all, and maintain the cabin, and because he's like, ah, I can't walk. I'm a shot. <laughs> okay. And then he, he, he then he makes a, a, a something about, well, you know, we don't have any food to eat. So then she goes out and shoots the horse, and she skins the horse, and they eat horse meat. Abby falls into the river while looking for food. The postman then gets up and goes to her rescue, so he can walk. The postman then nurses Abby back to health. Abby then tells the postman she's pregnant. It's Michael's baby, but the postman was just the father body. Make sense? Just a sperm. He's a sperm donor, but in her in her eyes, it's Michael's baby. Okay. Beth tried to rape Abby, but beat her instead. When the time she was captured. Okay. Spring has come, and then Abby sets the cabin on fire. She says, "We can't stay here forever." So then they, they, they're on their way. They meet a little girl on a horse. She is carrier number 18 of the U.S. Postal Service. She tells a story of the postman that was told to her from Fort Lincoln Mercury. He's in direct contact with the restored Congress. So he's listening to all this like, what in the hell? Right? Abby and the postman and... Carry number 18, go to see Ford. Ford reads a letter from the postman alongside, uh, um, from, uh, while, while being alongside President Starkey. So it's a letter saying, hey, it's, it's me, the postman. I'm with the president, okay? And he's reading this to, to, the, to, to the letter carriers, the mail carriers. There's a bunch of postmen and postwomen, okay? They also print anti-propaganda uh, uh, liter- literature. So then he tells them, and hey, you guys felt tyranny wrong. But the tyranny thing, I'm going to come back to that. Because this is where the, the smart, who's the smartest person between Bethlehem and uh, the postman. Bethlehem was initially bothered by the intelligence of um, the postman, which is why they, they went back and forth with quoting Shakespeare quotes. Okay? That's a, but I'm going I'm I'm to get back down to that. Okay, so then the postman is like, He's in a crowd. He's watching all this. And then somebody turns around and he, he, he asks a question and then the postman raises his hand and everybody looks at him. He's like, oh my God, it's him, it's him, it's him, it's him, it's him. So the postman and the Ford have a talk. Ford admits to lying. He didn't want it to end. The postman agrees to stay until President Starkey sends for him. Ford then shows off the mail processing center. They currently have 30 routes. 
and more postmen are sworn in. He questions a 65-year-old postman. He's a former Airborne. Bethlehem then had captured postman number 12, carry number 12. Uh, Bethlehem will attack Pineview at dawn. Because he gave up the, he gave up the info. Like, he's a kid. These are kids. Like, these are young teens and kids delivering the mail. Okay? The postman opens a new postal territory at number 10 in Ellis, Oregon. Back in Postview, Irene is read a response letter from her sister. Briscoe gets a letter from his sister. He thought she was dead. As Abby and the postman share a dance, a postman is shown being shot in the back. Abby walks away from the postman because at this point, she's like, I'm cool on you. I thank you for the baby, but I'm, I'm good, okay? Ford then reports that Tony, number 12, never returned because he's dead, all right? Bethlehem is brought back five dead postmen. They're teens. He's upset. He says he wanted men. They're, he said they're babies, okay? Then there's anti-Bethlehem pamphlets. And then this is when he says, oh, they, spared, they, they spelled tyranny wrong. So once again, this is the match of the wits between Bethlehem and the postman, who's the smartest person. Their bodies are hung upside down for everyone to see. Postview kills an aid patrol. The postman blames himself for the postmen and women getting killed and tries to run off, uh, run all the routes himself. But he can't. He can't physically do it. An aid outpost is attacked and the dead bodies are sent back to Bethlehem. Another postman was held hostage with a message for the, the postman. Ford was the one who sent the, the, the bodies back to Bethlehem because what happened was postman said, just get rid of the bodies. Ford was like, nah, fuck that. I'm going to send him a message. And he sent dead bodies back to, to Bethlehem. Ford tells the postman they have to fight back. Briscoe and the others are shot via firing squad. But before being shot, the Brisk Sheriff Briscoe, he yells, ride, postman, ride. All while the postman is watching from the hilltop. The postman then reads a letter from President Starkey. The letter says to disband the post office, burn all uniforms, and the postman is to return back to Maine. Ford questions the, valid the validity of the letter. Mind you, I, they can't read. Postman tells Ford, how much mail can a dead postman carry? Abby tries to talk the postman out of his decision. The postman comes clean about how he became the postman. A mole in, their, in, the, in, the, in the camp pulls out a gun on the postman saying, the general is a great man. The boy gets scared as to pull the trigger. Ford is caught by Bethlehem. Abby and the postman ride west. Ford and another postman from California face the firing squad. Bethlehem halts the squad. He realizes he'll be fighting a ghost. So he wants all postmen found and killed everywhere. Okay? Bethlehem then kills the postman from California that stood next to, to Lincoln. Right. So when they first meet, they didn't know each other. He says, hey, ain't, you're Ford Lincoln. He's like, yeah. He said, man, I want to shake your hand. I shake hands. He's a mixed kid. He's from California, but the word is spreading now. Okay? The postman and Abby make it to Bridge City. 
and they're followed by three former postmen. One of the Bethlehem's men uh, demand the postman. Uh, oh, okay, wait, wait. So they know where they they they, they assume the right area that Bridge City. So one of the the eight soldiers they go to Bridge City and say, "Hey, we think the postman's here. Send him out." Right? And then the little kid asks, "Well, what's a postman?" So then he gives the little kid a postman a mail carrier's hat. The mayor then asks uh, if he's the postman. Postman comes clean. He says, "Oh, you're you're pretty famous." Now the mayor's played by Tom Petty, right? So when he first meets the, the mayor, he says, "Hey, you're pretty famous," to, to Tom Petty, right? So then in reverse, when they find out that he's the postman, they say, "Hey, you're pretty famous too," right? So then uh, the postman. Uh, okay, Abby tells the postman he has a gift. He gives her the red ribbon from years prior. Abby is afraid the postman will never see his baby. The postman uh, agrees to ride into Postview to turn himself in. Right? But then as he rides in, so they show Postview, yeah, Postview being under under Bethlehem's regime. All right? So then there's an army riding into, to meet, into, into the Postview city to meet Bethlehem. And there's a flag, and it says, the Army of the Restored United States of America. And then there's a snitch, and then he, he, he and, and they all ride out, and they're facing like almost like the cavalry, and it's led by the postman. So then the one postman who snitched was riding with Bethlehem. He, he changed his side. He says, I'm going back over here with, with the good guys. Okay. So then he said, so then they, Bethlehem and Postman, they come out to meet, to talk, right? So then he says, hey man, look, we're both a couple of frauds. Postman wants to settle, he wants peace. Postman then invokes law number seven of the eight. He then reveals to everybody else his eight brand because they thought he was dead. So he's riding in front of the in front of the, the H and like showing his showing his tattoo like I had the right to challenge for the right for the for the leadership of the clan. Bethlehem remembers him as Shakespeare. So then they joust horses. They knock each other off their horses. They begin to wrestle. Bethlehem then reaches for a saber. The postman gets the upper hand and chokes Bethlehem out. Four pulls a pistol on, on Bethlehem, citing law number eight. The postman declares himself the clan leader. He says law number one, peace is declared. Four then changes law number eight to live and let live. Then Bethlehem draws a pistol while they're not looking and then is shot and killed by Colonel Getty, his number two, the guy who cut, he cut out his tongue and balls. All right, then Getty raises his rifle and then lays it on the ground, okay? Months later, or no, actually decades later. Decades later, sorry. It's decades later and the postman, no, no, I'm sorry, months, sorry. Months later, postman returns to visit Abby and his daughter. Uh, the daughter's name is Hope and, and uh, Abby and the postman fall back in love. Okay, the year is now 2043, St. Rose, Oregon. Hope 
is speaking at a commencement ceremony of her father. Humanity has recovered and thrived. There's a, there's a statue of her father, 1973 to, two, to, to 2043. So the statue of the postman is, if you remember the trailer, the part where he rides the horse and he's racing to, to reach to grab the letter from the little boy. Because what ended up happening was he was running his routes and the little boy came out the house to, to, to give the letter to the postman. And she's like, oh, honey, you, you, were, you were too late. He'll, he'll we'll send it, you know, we'll get it to him when he comes back. So then the postman hears what happened and he races towards the little boy. The little boy's, and then the postman, and he grabs the letter, you know, mid stride with the horse. That is the actual uh, statue. Okay, that moment when he reaches the letter from the little boy. The little boy in the statue is in, a, is in attendance. He was like, I was the one that gave him that letter. He's a grown man with a, with a family, right? In the scene, that was the postman. <laughs> wow. Um, yeet, listen. I cannot... Cannot further explain what happened here. A lot of civics, a lot of law. Like I said, if you don't understand this public versus private thing, I don't know what to tell you. Basically, you had a private entity in the KKK, which it is. You can't you can't legislate racism in the private. Okay, you can't tell people what to do in the private. Do you understand? You can talk, say, believe, do whatever the fuck you want. Against sex, gender, religion, creed in the private. It's only in the public when the government can tell you what to do and what not to do and say this is wrong, this is bad because you take government funding and handouts and benefits. You understand? So you had a private company in the KKK that went to war against the public government. And then in the end, everybody wanted the government back so bad, right? Because listen, Bethlehem was like do for self everybody do for themselves right be self-sustaining but the people wanted the government back they wanted that comfort you understand deep ass movie god damn alright so uh, <laughs> this was dope I'm not gonna hold y'all thank y'all for everybody that came in tonight if you donated thank you again shout out to everybody in the chat I'm out y'all have a good night peace